fair warning, this show contains strong language and adult themes from time to time. Sorry, Jerry can't help it. Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. It's your pal Jerry here, and I'm excited to tell you all about my thrilling new limited series podcast called The Halloween Conspiracy with Jerry Hara. In each episode of The Halloween Conspiracy, I delve into the backstory and history of infamous local urban legends, myths, and folklore, with stories that have haunted me my entire life, like the Montauk Project, the Amityville Horror House, Nikolai Tesla's Wardenclyffe Laboratory. I need you to tune in and help me get to the bottom of Long Island's biggest mysteries. Listen to this special three-part The Halloween Conspiracy with your host, me, Jerry Hara, starting October 1st, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your favorite shows. Your life may just depend on it. Where can I get my pickles when I can't get to a farmer's market or festival? The answer is Pickle Island in Bayville, New York. Listen, I've been selling a small pickle my whole life. I know all about it. From the vine to the brine, they keep their pickles cold with a delicious, diverse selection of gourmet pickles, including their savory classic bread and butter sweet chip, horseradish pickle, jalapeno pickle, and sweet Cajun pickle. They even got pickled beets and okra, a variety of sour treats for your next barbecue or get-together. But if you visit their store in Bayville, Long Island, New York, there's so much more, so much more. A fantastic selection of physical media, comics, music, movies, VHS, and Matt Roran, their enthusiastic pickle salesman. It's kind of a big deal. Check them out now at hormansbestpickles.com. Hey, quit jerking your gherkin and head over to Pickle Island in Bayville, New York. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on The Offering, join us beyond the velvet rope to explore the 1988 cult classic, Waxwork. Gentlemen, friends beyond the binary, it's me, your host, Jerry Hara, and this is The Offering. We are in the middle of season two, which is 1988, eight great movies from 1988. Hey, at the top of the show, there's a parental advisory. That's our good friend, R.A. the Rugged Man. Thank you so much. Shout out to the homie, poet laureate, incredible rapper. Can't wait for the new album to drop, but hey. He could have been anywhere in the world, but he's here on the offering. And I'm glad you're here because, ladies and gentlemen, people are showing us love. We are getting love, and I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Listen, hey, these folks, they've been going on iTunes. They're leaving five-star reviews. And guess what? 
I'm reading them because I got to reciprocate that love from the audience. So check this out. Let's go into this. Let's see what we got. This five-star review comes from our good friend, James Taffarelli. I'm very happy that he's been listening, and here's his review. A little something for everyone here. Jerry eloquently navigates the lines between genre and nostalgia to give us sometimes funny, sometimes informative, and always sincere deep dive into your favorite fandoms of both yesterday and today. At first, I cherry-picked only the episodes that interested me, and I found myself looking into episodes about everything from the rise of A24 films to the Hulk Hogan opus No Holds Barred. James, thank you. I implore others to do what you have done, but thank you for enjoying the show. Uh, it means the world to me, you know? And if you write your own reviews, I will read them on the show. As aforementioned, I'm trying to get caught up because a lot of you are starting to leave reviews, and that's a good thing. Thank you. I appreciate it. I need to get some business off of my chest, okay? We've got to get to the Prey business. Prey, obviously, this year came out, was the kind of a prequel. Do we call it a prequel? Is it a sequel? Is it a spinoff? Who the hell knows? Who cares anymore? Prey was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. If you follow me on social media, at Jerry Hara, you can read it on Letterboxd, you can read it on Instagram, check out my reviews to keep up with the latest and greatest horror slash genre offerings that we have to show you. So people kept saying to me, Jerry, why did Prey not come out in theaters? And I started saying to myself, I'm like, you got a good point. I really would have loved to have seen this film on the big screen. It's a beautifully shot film. Like, Dan Trachtenberg, he did his thing, man. The sound design, everything. Of course, there was some wonky CGI, but that's just the way it is. If you've been keeping up with everything, there's a CGI bottleneck. There's not enough digital artists, and there's too many films. And a lot of these superhero films, especially, they need a lot of work. And there just isn't enough people, artists, effects houses to keep up with all of this. So, hey, take it easy on these people. I mean, it's not like Spider-Man Far From Home came out and the effects weren't finished, right? Yeah, because I gotta say... I got to see that film again on home video, and it looks janky as fuck. Um, there's some really bad CGI in that movie, but I think that they had to deliver it into theaters by Christmas. It was just kind of a mandate. They did the best they could. I don't know. Just saying. Just saying. A lot of other people have been saying it too, so I know I'm not alone, and I'm not crazy. This whole Prey situation's crazy, though. Why didn't this beautiful film like you had in August, you got nothing going on. You you know, like you could easily come in with a solid genre offering or a solid horror offering and really knock it out of the park, you know, make a, a cool $30 million easily on an opening. Uh, the other thing too is praise a really good movie. So the word of mouth has been incredible. Um, I think even Hulu's subscription numbers went up because of it. People were so... It's one of these things where I think some people would have gone to see it, but the good thing was that it put Prey in front of a lot of eyeballs that probably wouldn't have gone to the theaters and seen it. And I think that's very admirable because it's a good movie. And I think, you know, every possible audience that can see it should see it. So I 
did a little bit of research, a little bit of digging, and this is basically what happened. So when Disney bought 20th Century Fox, any movie that was in production prior to the new regime, okay, um, and had been funded in such a way and such a, a time frame that pertained to, I guess, prior to the sale, it's kind of a weird thing. It's it's a little bit strange and nebulous, but I'm trying to explain it to you the best that I possibly can. So there's a deal in place that if they would have released these movies prior, it's like the same thing that happened with the uh, the third Kingsman movie. They have to put the movie directly on HBO because that's the agreement that... 20th Century Fox had in place with uh, the HBO network was that the movie comes out and it gets released theatrically and then it goes direct to HBO Max. They even did a couple of things you've been seeing. They've been playing games with putting Free Guy on multiple services. And it really has to do with the arrangements that were made prior to the sale of 20th Century Fox to Disney. So... Essentially, what it was, was that they would have released Prey theatrically. It would have come out, but then they would have had to put it on HBO within a 45-day window as per the original agreement. They would rather lose money theatrically than give that film to HBO Max in 45 days. And that's how crazy this whole thing has become. They're willing to cut their own throats, make less profit, so that their competitor does not get the content. And to me, that's fucking batty, but this is the world we live in. I still don't know how these companies make money off of the subscription model. We're getting to a point now where they're plateauing, you know? But obviously, Prey was a hot enough commodity, and who would have thought an unsuspecting audience didn't realize what was going to be dropped upon them And it turned out to be kind of this huge hit. It's actually become the most streamed movie on Hulu, which is saying a lot because they've got a ton of movies. They've got a ton of original content, but it just goes to show you a little bit of a genre love, a little bit of gore, a little bit of action, science fiction, horror, the right recipe, the right cocktail for the perfect summer movie, the perfect summer blockbuster, if you will, that didn't come out in theaters. So, now that we've got that off of our chest, folks, we are knee-deep into Season 2 of The Offering, 1988. Eight great movies from 1988. Today we're talking all about Waxwork. It's a cult classic. It's kind of, if you know, you know. I'm going to get into it. We're going to get down to business. It's going to be some serious shit. Hey, don't forget... Follow me on Instagram. Follow me on TikTok. Follow me on all the goddamn socials. We've gone through this before. Write a review. As you see, or as you've heard. See, I don't think you can see a podcast. Not yet. We're working on that. We're also working on the uh, smell-o-vision portion of this where you'll be able to... Yeah, that's gross. Nobody wants that. So, folks, if you will, for your consideration, let's talk about Waxwork. Waxwork. 
love this movie. It's definitely one of my favorites from 1988. It's damn near the reason we started doing this whole season, the eight great movies from 1988. <laughs> so let's get into it. So Waxwork, released June 17th, 1988. Uh, the budget was $3.5 million. The final domestic gross was $800,000 and $114. Is that how you say that? $800,114? I don't fucking know how you say it. It didn't make a lot of money. In fact, it, it kind of uh, lost money. I saw the trailer for this movie on TV, which it, it barely got any kind of a marketing push. But that didn't matter because a lot of times when you were watching trailers late at night on television... Don't forget, the 80s were a different time. So there was kind of this mandate that anything that was R-rated or too ghastly in nature, they were trying to do after 8 p.m. You know, like, you weren't going to be watching an episode of G.I. Joe as a kid and, like, there would be a trailer for Elm Street 3. They at least tried to be a little mindful of that. But I remember seeing a 30-second spot for this movie, and I was like, holy shit, what is that? That looks crazy. I want to see that. Unfortunately... You know, when you're a kid, you're kind of under the reliance of older people to see movies. Like a lot of times I had my older cousins or my parents. So what happens is, is if they don't take you to see it, you're not, you're probably not going to see it, especially at the age being under the age of like 12 at that time. So Waxwork came out at, I think, a couple of local theaters here in Long Island, New York, and it just disappeared. Literally after a weekend, I think the reason being that a lot of those theaters were empty. The movie dropped in the middle of June, you know, which is like the hottest time, especially for summer blockbusters. And I think they thought that there was a chance that this film could connect with the public, find its audience and make a ton of money. And I think there's, you know, maybe a multiverse or a perfect world where that happens. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Waxwork was a flop. However, it would find life in other ways. It's 11.45, let's go. Imagine, if you will, an exhibit in fear. It looks a little spooky, boys. You think we should do this? A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. Ooh, scary. Your fascination with ghosts, monsters, and the many unearthly elements of the supernatural. Welcome to the Vetsmark! Look. And this is killer. Enjoy. Wow, the glasses from Nutty Zombies from Hell. Lose yourself in it. Do you like a closer look? Really? But whatever you do, don't step over the rope. Welcome, my dear. We thought you were too tired to join us. All right, I'm hypnotized. Hey, not so fast. Ah! Relax! Uh, a cup of coffee, we'll talk about it. I want out of here, Sarah. I'm serious. Getting scared? Will I get a pretty woman in my illusion? No. No, I get a dork. It isn't real! Hello? What the hell did you kill him for? He'd have been perfect! children live hit me 
Estron Pictures welcomes you into a new dimension in terror. Waxwork. It absolutely killed on video and cable. It was released unrated. Well, excuse me. It was released in a rated version that was R-rated and then an unrated version. I highly recommend if you're going to seek this film out, get the unrated cut, watch that. And uh, speaking of which, the Motion Picture Association hated this movie. We're going to get into that later, but they sent it back like I think no less than 10 or 12 times because there was just too much violence, too much gore. And it's crazy because there is a very tongue-in-cheek comedic tone to a lot of the proceedings in this film, and that's fine. But I think the Motion Picture Association in the late 80s, they were just cracking down on everything. It didn't matter whether it was Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Halloween. They just decided, hey, look, we can only allow so much violence because we know that kids are going to see these movies, even though they're not supposed to. But it's happening. So let's try to cut down on the gore, especially for mainstream releases. I was a dumb little kid. I would take my bike down to the video store and I would see the posters and I would beg to get posters. And sometimes I would, sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I'd get uh, the cardboard cutouts. Most times I wouldn't. But there was a poster in the video store for waxwork. And a lot of times you didn't know when this stuff was coming out. Like, there weren't hard dates. There also wasn't sell-through. For the most part, most movies you weren't buying on VHS, you know, with the exception of stuff that had been sold like E.T. and the following year with 1989's Batman. You know, movies that were made to buy en masse on a consumer level. So we still weren't there. You know, the other thing, too, is the owner of the video store, he was very aware of, okay, I'm getting Top Gun or I'm getting Footloose, big movie, and he knows that he's getting 20 copies. Smaller movies like this, generally, a video store would only get one copy. He knows when he's getting uh, Footloose or whatever because he's paying $100 a copy and he has to get X amount of copies because he's going to make a lot of money. And then eventually... Once the rentals begin to decline, they would take those tapes that have probably been seen hundreds of times and then sell them off. And that's a lot of how I built my collection as a kid. They would sell these movies off for five or ten bucks, and I was more than happy to buy them. I, I wish I still had a lot of them. With that being said, I don't think anybody was checking for waxwork, but it did come out by like the end of August on VHS. And that was quick. Back in the old days, you had a much longer theatrical window. I mean, now, you know, you had HBO Max doing day and date. And the common practice these days is 45-day theatrical window, which is insane that it comes out in theaters and then it'll be on streaming in X amount of time. And I get it. The reasoning behind it is that they're spending so much money on the marketing. I always tell people, uh, most major studio films, if it costs $100 million to make, take half of that, and that's your promotional budget. So it didn't cost $100 million. It cost about $150, $160, because that's the marketing budget. And I think a lot of executives, especially in this industry, think, well, it's got to be fresh in the minds, and we just spent $60 million to market said film. So let's try to keep 
moving. Let's try to keep that momentum up and let's try to sell it. Uh, that's kind of been the attitude. But back in the day, you used to have to wait. Sometimes it took years. Like it took years for ET to come to home video. Like if you weren't there and you don't remember before they sold it in stores, like at a retail for like twenty to twenty nine dollars, you you had to wait because these films played. They had a much longer shelf life and they played for months, especially a, a good big movie. The the larger movies like Star Wars and things of that nature, like Jaws, those played for years. They they even just kept bringing them back. Like hey, it's Christmas. It was, a, it was a big strategy. This summer, we saw it again. They brought back E.T. in August. They brought back Jaws in September. They even brought back Spider-Man, Far From Home. They brought that back out. And the reason is, is because there just isn't enough in cinemas, especially genre stuff right now. Talking about, in the intro, the whole CGI bottleneck. And they're just not able to get some of these bigger genre offerings out. So kind of the months of August and September of this year, just completely sparse, you know, just not enough content there. I would go to the video store with my friends. During the summer, one of the big rituals was like, you go, you go to the pizzeria, you buy some candy, maybe you steal some candy. Maybe, I don't know, you hang out with your bikes in front of 7-Eleven because there's fucking nothing to do. We did have arcades, and if you were lucky, you would go to a pizzeria, you know, you go to some convenience store, and they might have a Street Fighter II machine. But for the most part, that's what you did in the summer during those long stretches of time when you had nothing to do. A lot of video stores had days during the week. Like, obviously, they were making their money on the weekends. So you used to go and it would be like, okay, you could rent one and then you get one free or rent two, get one free. So those were opportunities for my friends and I to see movies that our parents normally wouldn't let us see, you know, get the stuff that's whether it's martial arts or it's just boobs or blood, whatever it is, that's what you're going after. And at certain point, there was a video store by me. It was called Village Video. And they had a poster up for waxwork. And I would ride my bike. And I was, I must have been the most annoying little kid. I would like ride my bike and I'd come in and I'd be like, hey, did waxwork come in yet? And they'd be like, you know, they'd look at me like, what the fuck is waxwork? Because most video retailers, unless, look, we'd all like to believe that the person behind the counter was quentin tarantino and it was some cinephile but in most cases it was like the owner's daughter or like somebody's sister-in-law and they're like wax work what the fuck is they don't know what that is they have no idea what that is but i digress i would ride my bike and hopefully one day it was gonna happen and then i showed up and there it was wax work unrated oh boy i was so excited and I was like, wow, when did this come out? She's like, yeah, we put it out a couple of days ago. She's like, nobody's rented it. And I'm like, wow, they're a bunch of suckers because <laughs> I'm going to rent it. And rent it, I did. Okay, a lot of you might not have seen this film. Normally, I have to, you know, I don't have to go into what this film is about. Uh, a lot of these films are just so big. I very rarely recount the plots of films, but I'm going to give you a little bit of synopsis from the back of the VHS because I felt that it was fitting. 
The 18 most evil beings used in the film are the Marquis de Sade, a werewolf, Count Dracula, his brides and his son only exist within the portal and are not among those displayed. That's a whole nother story. A golem, the Phantom of the Opera, the Mummy, George A. Romero-style zombies, Frankenstein's monster, Jack the Ripper, the Invisible Man, a voodoo priest, a witch, a snake man, Rosemary's baby, an axe murderer, an alien, a giant talking Venus flytrap, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay, so I don't know exactly if that describes what the movie is about, but it is truth in advertising. You are going to get those things in the movie. It's a monster mash. It's all the monsters. Back in the old days, when the original Universal Monsters ran their, they ran their cycle, at a certain point, there was, there was just some fat guy with a cigar, and he was like, give me all the monsters. Give me the Wolfman, the Frankenstein, because that's all you could do. People had already seen four movies about Frankenstein. Let's give him a bride. Let's have him fight Wolfman, because there's nothing else to do with him. And we kind of started that trend with Freddy vs. Jason. I really wish the versus genre would have caught on a little more. We got Freddy vs. Jason. We got Alien vs. Predator. But I wanted the weird shit. I wanted, like, Pinhead versus Leprechaun. Maybe Michael Myers versus the Terminator. Now we're cooking with gas. Now we got something going on. Jason Voorhees was in this script, by the way. In this universe of waxwork, he was to be a real serial killer. Paramount wouldn't allow it. They tried. They were going to put a guy in kind of a replica hockey mask. And there was even a reference in the screenplay where it was like, hey, that's Jason Voorhees, the guy who killed all those teenagers. And, you know, the waxwork owner would be like, yes, he's real and blah, 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 blah. But that's, you know, I digress. It is what it is. This film was marketed as a horror film. But in all actuality, waxwork is kind of a horror comedy. If you like stuff like the Evil Dead movies, this is definitely up your alley. So if you cross the velvet ropes of the displays, you basically get sucked into a pocket dimension. So you see the display of the werewolf. And the waxwork itself is doorways to evil. And there's these little pocket universes. So once you step beyond the velvet rope, you are now in that dimension, in that pocket universe where that werewolf really exists. And that's when they can actually kill you. There's a lot of people who have debated how this all works. But look, let's not get... People get too hung up on details, all right? Let's just enjoy the film for what it is. Vestron Video was the distributor on this, and we are going to fucking get into it today. This is no joke about VHS distribution. I know it's not the most exciting subject, but I know there's a lot of nerds who are out there who are really going to enjoy what I have to tell you. Uh, they were riding high off of the incredible success of Dirty Dancing, which was like one of these things where Dirty Dancing was a huge movie, and not only did they make a ton of money theatrically, it was a banger on video. I mean, it sold and it sold. And then eventually, after they stopped renting it, they sold it. Uh, you know, you could buy it for retail. And it was just like, I mean, I think millions of units were sold of that film. It was like, there's there's a bunch of movies in the late 80s that were just absolute bangers that made so much money. Dirty Dancing was, they would have to send copies back because 
eventually what was happening was the people were watching them and renting them so frequently that they would just snap. They would break, which is crazy to think. Believe it or not, one of the founders of Vestron Video was John Hughes. Yes, that John Hughes who made all those classic comedy movies and teen coming-of-age stories. Uh, he was a pretty smart dude, and he realized that distribution was a big part of making money, especially, you know, you had your films that came out in theaters, but there were a lot of movies that cleaned up on home video. Canon, Canon Films knew this. They were very aware that, yeah, it might have a good two-week theatrical run, but you got to keep those video shelves stocked. You might not be able to see that new Tom Cruise movie, but we got a bunch of Chuck Norris ones that you can watch while you're waiting for that. And that's kind of what happened. So we're going to get into Vestron Video. Now, Lightning Video, which is much loved by fans, was a subsidiary of Vestron handling more of the genre content. A lot of you probably remember there were trauma releases. Uh, there was a bunch of horror action kind of grindhouse movies that Lightning Video distributed. The company only lasted from 85 to 88. Lightning Video distributed Terrorvision, Chopping Mall, Cheech and Chong's Corsican Brothers, which was the first weed-free movie. And uh, there's a reason that it's the only weed-free movie that Cheech and Chong ever made. They have a very specific shtick and a very specific audience. And uh, yeah, it wasn't good. Now, going from 86 to 91, Lightning and Vestron were acquired by Live Entertainment in 91. Subsequently went out of business in 92. They became partners with Carlico Pictures, whom they bought a large portion of shares in the company. And due to the enormous debt that Carlico had, they had to sell their shares in live video. Now, Carlico was the company that produced Rambo 3, they produced Terminator 2, Universal Soldier. Um, they were kind of like a mini major, you know, doing these very action-heavy films uh, with Stallone and Van Damme and Arnold. Ultimately, though, they went out of business and they, they sold everything off to live video. So now Live was bought by Artisan, the people who brought you to Blair Witch Project, The Punisher, and Man-Thing before Marvel films were good. Um, <laughs> so Artisan gets bought out by Lionsgate Entertainment. And ultimately, Lionsgate gets bought by Universal. I just wanted to make sure we were all clear on this, that all of these companies that were video distributors essentially cannibalized each other. Uh, by the time I want to say like 92, it was, it was all done. Everybody had just bought everybody by that point. As a side note, the Carlico film library ultimately went to studio canal, which is a French company. They produce many mid to large budget European films. Like when you go and you, you saw all the movies, uh, I can't think of the director's name because I'm just, I'm having a senior moment. But everything like The Professional, The Fifth uh, Element. With a little help from producer Pete, we have figured out that that director's name is Luc Besson. A lot of the, the genre stuff that you see, whether it was The Fifth Element or the Transporter series, you see that that was Studio Canal. They handle a lot of distribution in Europe. They also manage the remaining library of Canon Films, uh, as well as Carlico. 
the foreign distribution. Basically, let's put it this way. Studio Canal handles everything from Hammer's old horror output to Miramax and, yes, Studio Ghibli. And it's insane, I mean, to think that ultimately all of that European distribution from all these companies, like if you you think about like My Neighbor Totoro, you think Totoro, it's Totoro. My Neighbor Totoro (laughs) or like The Blood of Dracula and Invasion USA are all distributed by Studio Canal in Europe. Okay, I hope a lot of you are not asleep, but you got all that, okay? Just I want to make sure that everybody is on the same page. The distribution of VHS and home video ended up being cannibalized. It was so ultra white hot from 85 to 92. People were basically just printing money and sometimes writing checks that their asses couldn't cash. And that's why so many of these companies went out of business or their libraries ultimately got gobbled up. And that's a whole nother problem with streaming because everybody needs movies. They need content. And as much as you make, you still need the older library of films that are recognizable to audiences. Now back to Waxwork. Enter writer-director Anthony Hickox. He started as a club promoter in England in the early 1980s. He was booking some of the hottest acts at the time, like Depeche Mode, Pet Shop Boys. He showed one of his short films to the owner of the club he was working at. And he said, Anthony, you got a real talent here. Like, you need to do something with this. He's like, you don't need to be just promoting dance acts at a club, you know? So the owner of this club, he gave Anthony enough money to go to Los Angeles and get started as a filmmaker. And he said to him, Anthony, do not come back to the UK until you make a movie. I think it's a nice little story. You know, it's kind of like what we always want. Somebody who's going to foster our creativity and invest into an artist. It's heartwarming. I think that a lot of us, you know, we hope that that would happen to us. We kind of get that big uh, push from somebody, somebody who sees talent within us. Now, in Los Angeles, Tony famously met the producer of Waxwork, Stefan Ehrenberg, when he crashed into the back of his car in the motel where they were both staying at in Fairfax. Tony, who's broke at the time, told Stefan into letting him pay for the damage by writing him a script for $3,000. Stefan agreed, but wouldn't pay a penny until it was delivered. Tony wrote the script for Waxwork in three days. Now, again, we're learning that Fortuitous, he's working at this club. Guy sees his short film, says, hey, here's a couple of bucks, go to Los Angeles. He goes to Los Angeles. He hits this producer's car and then ends up saying, okay, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take you to court, I'm not gonna call the insurance, just write me a screenplay. Come on, who does this happen? You can't make this up, man. Fact is sometimes stranger than fictions, folks. Fictions, like a <laughs> plural. The script was partially inspired by the 1924 German silent film Waxworks. It's creepy. Not Waxwork singular, Waxworks plural. You can go watch it on YouTube, and it is creepy. Trust me, it's nightmare fuel. The script then did the rounds, getting turned down by every studio. I mean, they tried to sell this to everybody, and they had no interest. And I think it's a great concept. To be perfectly honest with you, if I was running a studio in the 80s, I'd say, yeah, give these guys $5 million. Let them go make it. But that's why... They don't let me time travel back to the 1980s and run a movie studio. 
Also, for future reference, if I ever get a time travel machine, I will be going back to the 80s and producing films. Some people will try to save humanity. I'm just going to try and make a sequel to some films that I liked. So, he takes it to every studio. Everybody says no. And Vestron was the only one left because of how much money they had made with a lot of their offerings like Dirty Dancing, they were flush with cash and they had some money to sink into other movies. And it was kind of like playing the lottery. If you sink 3.5 million into like 10 different movies, one of them's going to hit, right? Maybe, I don't know. Now, Vestron originally turned it down two days before Christmas. And it was over the vacation that their friend, producer Mark Berg, who would go on to produce Saw, said he couldn't believe that Dan Ireland, who was the head of Vestron at the time, wouldn't have loved it. It turns out he hadn't read it. In fact, the script never made it past the script readers. And the problem, can I just say the problem with script readers, is usually it's a bunch of kids who, they're out of film school, they've never really written a good script, they've never sold a script, and they've never made a movie. So why the fuck are these kids reading the scripts? That's a good question. Yeah, it turns out that the script never got to the head of the studio. And and that was kind of a problem because this guy, Dan Ireland, loved genre movies. You know, he had produced all this different stuff like Chopping Mall, Terrorvision. This was was a, a home run for him. You know, he likes that kind of thing. So the first day after his vacation, Mark sent waxwork to Dan himself. The rest, as they say, is horror movie history. Hickox made a lot of interesting films during his career. We're going to get into that in a minute. But it was kind of one of these things where the guy who ended up producing this movie absolutely loved horror. And unfortunately, because, you know, a lot of people, especially in the entertainment industry, they keep themselves flanked and surrounded by a team of people who necessarily don't always have their best interests at heart they're making a decision saying oh this is a film that'll sell and i think a lot of times within the film industry you kind of have to trust your own sensibilities if you understand the artist or you understand the screenplay and you think it's a good idea you move forward it's kind of like alan ladd with george lucas alan ladd loved george lucas and thought he was a visionary but he did not understand star wars he's like i don't get this screenplay But I think George is a genius, so I'm going to foster his talent and make this shit happen. And sometimes that's all you need. And that's what happened with Dan Ireland and Anthony Hickox. He found the right guy who was like, yes, I will finance wax work. I want to just go through Hickox's filmography really quick. Uh, He made a lot of interesting movies. The underrated horror western Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat. It's a great movie. A lot of these Vestron movies have gotten picked up and they've got distribution on Blu-ray. You can see them. You can see Sundown, The Vampire and Retreat. That was recently released along with a two-pack of waxwork on Blu-ray, the first movie and the second movie. This is a weird one. I had to keep it in because it's so weird. Hickox wrote this screenplay in the early 90s called Submerged. In this screenplay, it was originally supposed to be Steven Seagal, versus alien monsters on a submarine and i kind of gotta be honest with you okay i'm listening like that does sound interesting 
Seagal basically had had the success kind of peaked out with Under Siege. And then after that, he directed on Deadly Ground and he did Under Siege 2 to try to capitalize on the success. But by the mid to late 90s, he was essentially making direct-to-video movies. And Hickox had approached his people with this script for Submerged. But the producers said, okay, look, if we're going to make this movie, the monsters are going to cost X amount of dollars to make, two or three million dollars. Seagal hated the script and the producers were cheap. So they rewrote Submerged and it became Steven Seagal versus Mercenaries on a Submarine. I don't know. Call me crazy. But for my money, Steven Seagal versus Alien Monsters on a Submarine, way more interesting because essentially what you're doing is you're using the Die Hard motif where it's like, well, you know, I mean, look, the aircraft carrier or a gigantic ship, that's a cool movie. You've got a lot of room to run around. Even Speed 2, Cruise Control, as flawed as it is, you've still got room to work with. On a submarine, no matter how big it is, there ain't too many places to go. Fun fact, submerged, no one cared, no one saw it, but it got made. You can rent it. It's terrible. I've watched it. I did it all for you. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. This was the first big budget entry in the Hellraiser series, which was severely hacked to pieces by names we shall not name, uh, Miramax. You might know that you might know somebody by the name of Harvey hacked this movie to bits, didn't understand it. It was a co-production between Miramax and Paramount, and both of them wanted something different. I think with Hellraiser 3, they were looking to turn the film into a serious franchise, like they were going to make Pinhead like Freddy, but that's kind of not what Clive Barker intended. Clive Barker's involvement at that point was null. He was he was doing the John Carpenter thing where he's just getting a check and calling it a day. Hickox directed it, arguably probably the biggest film that he directed that was kind of like his shot at big success. Unfortunately, he made a bunch of other movies, nothing really noteworthy. Uh, I mean, I really wish that I could sit here and tell you that, it, that he Hellraiser 3 was his big shot, and I feel like ultimately it was not. It just didn't work out. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. If you like vintage and retro style, you'll be shopping at these two shops. Paper Doll Vintage Boutique and Paper Doll Curiosity Shop. Long Island's premier shops for vintage, retro, gifts, and more. Paper Doll Vintage in Sayville has all one-of-a-true-kind vintage clothing and accessories for the true vintage lover, while Paper Doll Curiosity in Patchogue carries retro novelty gifts, toys, clothing. They've got something for everybody. Got something for the whole family. You want the credentials. Paper Doll Vintage Boutique has won first place in Best Vintage Clothing Store in the Long Island Press's Best of Long Island. Seven years in a row. Undefeated. Can your vintage and retro store say that? I'm going to tell you what, probably not. Because of the unique nature of the items sold there at both stores, the shop has become a local hub for artists, the community, hosting monthly art shows, classes, events, and even fashion shows. You got to check this out. You got to come down. You got to see it. From theme party goers 
theater stylists, companies, photographers, designers, all facets of the industry. How about that period film project? You know, the one that you've been thinking of that needs authentic wardrobe and props? Paper Doll Vintage. Paper Doll Vintage Boutique and Curiosity Shop specializes in distinctive items that are hard to find anywhere else. One of a kind. One of a kind. And you are one of a kind and you deserve that. ShopPaperDoll.com and express your personal style. Listeners and fans of The Offering can get their hands on their very own The Offering with Jerry Hara merch, now only at Public. Find your own fresh The Offering with Jerry Hara high-quality merchandise, including t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, long sleeves, stickers, and mugs. Just like the show, we've got gear that's mostly horror, always genre. The Offering with Jerry Hara Tee Public Store has everything you need to represent your favorite podcast. Folks, head on over to teepublic.com right now and pick up your very own Offering Tee today. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. So let's get into the cast of this movie. We got Zach Galligan to star Gremlins. Look, everybody thought that this dude was going to be the next big breakout thing, mainly because Joe Dante brought, I mean, look, so many actors read for Gremlins. It's insane. Like, if you go and you see, like, all the people that were trying to get on that movie, and out of the hundreds, maybe thousands of actors that auditioned for Gremlins, Zach Galligan got it. And I'm going to be honest, full disclosure, I'm not trying to be a dick. Zach Galligan is a bit of a nothing. Okay. Um, I've met him. He's a wonderful guy. Very nice. Uh, I did security on a film with him. I'd rather not talk about it. Let's not get into it. But maybe if you see me in person, I'll tell you the story. He's a really nice guy. Good people. Very nice guy. That's all I'll say. But you realize when you see gremlins now through different eyes as an adult, you're like, wow, this is they're really like, he's handsome. He's charming. But even in the scene where you've got him and Phoebe Cates and she's talking about her father and the whole Santa Claus incident, she's just acting circles around him. When you see him interact with other people, you're like, eh, he's, he's a young, handsome man, but there's really not a lot there. And it's a shame because he made a film for MGM called Nothing Lasts Forever. And it was a science fiction comedy drama. Now, had a supporting cast that you might have heard of. Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sam Jaffe, Mort Saul, John Belushi. Yeah, you might have heard of some of these people, right? John Belushi was to appear in the film, but he died six weeks before production began, sadly. In the film, Zach plays a young piano player. He helps a homeless man who leads him to be taken into an underground network where he discovers that the city's tramps are controlling the destiny of all the cities in the world. This is high-concept science fiction. They instruct him to travel to the moon on a mission, 
via a city bus and its conductor, Bill Murray, to spread peace and find his true love. You guys following all this? Because this is pretty fucking wild. Basically, he's doing this movie and a lot of people are like, wow, Zach Galligan's in this movie? Shortly before the scheduled release date, MGM announced that Nothing Lasts Forever was being postponed. MGM never released the film theatrically, nor has it ever been available on home video in any format in the United States. The film has been broadcast on one TV network, BBC Two, one time in the UK in 1994. You're asking, why did this film get shelved? Well, listen, history repeats itself. And as we saw recently with the events that led up to the shelving of Batgirl, here we are. It's legal obligations, folks. Isn't it exciting? Into the world of legal obligations. MGM couldn't release this film. Side note, because we talked about everything consuming everything, Amazon bought the entire MGM library in 2020, which includes this film. I I had to just, I had to go back and take a look. Nothing Lasts Forever is a part of the MGM library, and it still has not been released. This is pretty crazy, too. Murray and director Tom Schiller held the first U.S. screening of the film on April 13th, 2004 at the BAM Cinematheque in Brooklyn, New York. That's the only stateside showing it ever had. Going to get to it in a minute, folks. Hear me out. For those who are curious about this movie, it's a bit strange. Like, I see what they they were going for. You can watch it for free on YouTube. It's... It's kind of a curiosity. It's not the best quality what's up there on YouTube. But I think a lot of people said to themselves, wait, Zach Galligan's in a movie with Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray. You know, like this, it's basically a reunion of the cast of Ghostbusters sans Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson never gets the respect he deserves. Always screwing him somehow. Yeah. I mean, look, it's not like, I, I think a lot of us, you hear these urban legends about movies and you're like, oh, wow, I'm going to unearth this classic. And the truth is, is that any exhibitor worth their salt, they'll find a way to release it. Just like Batgirl, they'll find a way to release it at some point. Other than a lot of the people in the movie, it, it's just not that good. I think when you, you think back, a lot of these films like Terry Gilliam and Brazil, it's kind of in that vein, but without the sheer lunacy and or style. In 1990, Zach would star again in Gremlins 2, the new batch, his old pal Phoebe Cates. And here's the thing. He's not a bad actor. He's a pretty good actor. He never got his due. All right, fine. I'll tell you. I did security for the low-budget horror film Infested in 2002. Uh, It was later sold as a negative pickup deal with Science Fiction Network. At the time, it was called Sci-Fi, S-Y-F-Y. He was a cool guy. The problem I think they had was that in 2002, they were a little too over-reliant on green screen and digital effects. And I think ultimately, it just, the technology wasn't there. And uh, it was one of those things where they were trying to do a movie that was kind of like the big chill with Generation X and mutant insects. 
And it's just like the, the two tones of the movie, like sometimes it's comedic, sometimes it's dramatic. It's really not worth your time. But they did pay me and they fed me, which was very nice. And I, I got to meet uh, Zach Galligan. Zach Galligan. <laughs> Is that his name? I got to look it back up. Yeah. Zach Galligan. All right. I got it right. At first, I thought I said Zach Galifianakis, but I did not work with him. Uh, I wish I did. I wish I did. But uh, the Pink Power Ranger also was in that film. I forget her name. It's not of importance. If you're a big Pink Power Ranger, she was a little weird. Uh, I believe the actress is Amy. That's all I can remember. I don't care. I'm not going to look it up. I'm not going to make producer Pete look it up. She was fine. She she seemed kind of the most stuck up on the production. You know, it's kind of one of those deals where it's like, do you know that I'm the Pink Power Ranger? And it's like, bitch, nobody cares that you're the Pink Power Ranger. Nobody cares. Somebody cares. Somebody's listening to your show like, wow, you worked with Amy Jo Johnson. Ah, see, I remembered it. Through the fog of marijuana and ecstasy and the years and years of video games, I'm able to re- recall some things. Uh, long story short, yeah. Deborah Foreman was in this film. Dear Lord, Deborah Foreman. She's hot, man. She's still hot. I... I- See, if you're beautiful, I, I have pleasant things to say about you. Amy Jo Johnson's still beautiful. She looks great. Was not a very nice person, but it is what it is. Like, I mean, what's what's really going to happen? At some point, I'm at a horror convention. She's going to kick my ass. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I like it. I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out. After a 1983 appearance on the popular sitcom Family Ties, Deborah Foreman was cast in her breakout role in the now cult classic film Valley Girl with Nicolas Cage. Uh, Recently got remade, sort of. Weird kind of quasi-remake that hit Amazon. Not too good. Let's not talk about it. After that, she shot a number of scenes for Grizzly 2, The Revenge, which is a 74-minute movie that was barely finished, had everyone from Charlie Sheen, a young Laura Dern, and even George Clooney. Grizzly 2 would be semi-completed and released in 2020. Uh, I guess it was the pandemic. We might as well finish this movie. We got a bunch of stars in it. Grizzly 2 is terrible. It's one of the only movies that, because they didn't own the rights to the first movie, they actually paid for shots to be reused from the first movie in this second one. It's a hot mess. It's it's not really good. And it's it's definitely another stay tuned. Like, like Grizzly 2 might be coming to an offering episode near you. I think much like Zach, she's a great actress that had a lot of potential. Uh, Deborah Foreman, she starred in 80s classics, Real Genius, My Chauffeur, and uh, April Fool's Day, which is an underrated classic that also got remade and the remake sucked. That's not always the case. Sometimes you have movies like The Thing, where the remake is fantastic. She even worked with Hickox again in Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat. During the filming of Waxwork, she was dating Anthony Hickox, and they later had a messy breakup, and that's why she doesn't appear in the sequel, Waxwork 2, Lost in Time. Yeah, supposedly this whole relationship went south. It happens. You know, actors, actresses, People, they, everybody hooks up, you know, and then what ultimately goes on is that if you're not with the person, you're probably not going to be in their next project because breaking up is hard to do. 
Patrick McNee, most famously starred in the original hit television show, The Avengers, is in this film. John Reese davies most famous for playing Sala in the Indiana Jones films, Indy! And fan favorite Treebeard in the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies. Did he play Treebeard? Oh, yeah, Gimli. Producer Pete has uh, instructed me that it's Gimli. You know, here, look. It's time we have a, a come-to-Jesus moment, folks. I've never seen the Lord of the Rings movies. I really don't give a shit. I know that Amazon, they've they have got their own Lord of the Rings, Power of the Cock Rings, whatever it is. I have no interest. I don't care. It's just, I don't know. For whatever reason, I'm not a big sword and sorcery guy. I just can't get into it. I've tried, believe me. Did I also mention that John Reese davies was the first actor to play the original Kingpin? with the Daredevil co-starring Trial of the Incredible Hulk? Yes, because that happened. Before the MCU, there was some funky shit going on at NBC. There was that whole thing where they did the Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Um, There was the Return of the Incredible Hulk where they tried to get Thor working, and it was kind of one of these genie in a bottle. You know, you rub the hammer, and all of a sudden Thor appears. Rub Thor's hammer. Anybody? The fantastic David Warner who just passed away, uh, all of his scenes were shot in two days because he had different obligations to a couple of different pictures at the time. Now, in memoriam of David Warner, he's probably one of the most gifted character actors that lived. Uh, just incredible. Straw Dogs, The Omen, various roles in the Star Trek films and TV shows, Time Bandits, Titanic, and perhaps my favorite, the crowning achievement of all cinematic history, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Use. If you need a swarmy and diabolical British man, look no further. David Warner is just so fucking damn good. He's such a great actor. And, you know, look, people get old, they die. This is the world we live in, folks. But uh, rest in peace to David Warner. Fantastic actor. That's a pretty damn good cast for this movie so far, right? Solid from top to bottom. Oh, wait, there's more. Dana Ashbrook as Bobby Briggs. He was a rebellious teenager who was dating Laura Palmer. He was the actor. Uh, Dating Laura Palmer while they were also cheating on each other and is now a deputy in the current iteration of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. And Dana Ashbrook he did a lot of genre films. Fantastic movie that was made a couple of years ago, Late Phases. It's all about werewolves. That's a recommend. Definitely check that out. Obviously, Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. He was in Ghost Dad um, with noted celebrity who never did anything wrong, Bill Cosby. No, I can't. It's so fuck. Like, how do we talk about this stuff? Like, if I was going to talk about Harvey Weinstein, I don't want to talk about him. And now Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby made a movie called Ghost Dad in the 80s. It's largely terrible, but it's got a really good cast and some fantastic special effects, but it's got Bill Cosby. Moving on. Return of the Living Dead 2. Dana Ashbrook was in a lot of stuff, but I'm just going through the genre output because that's what pertains to what we're doing right now. He actually started his career as an uncredited boy on boat in the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. So you could say that 
from a very young age, this guy was destined to do some funky stuff. Hey, did I mention John Reese davies plays a werewolf in this movie? Because he does. And it is fantastic. Yeah. I just, I needed to throw in that little fun fact there. Waxwork is a banger, man. It's a good movie. It's got such a solid concept. And the thought that you could go into all these different dimensions... I mean, ultimately, I think you know what happens in this film. The monsters get out. Sorry, spoiler alert. It's a very simple film. But there's stuff, especially... This is where the the MPAA had their most issues with the film. There's that whole scene with Dracula and the Brides of Dracula, and they're in this stark white room that's like a mausoleum, and you know exactly what's going to happen. That room is too white for there not to be some bloodshed. And this is where the unrated film really shines, is with that vampire sequence. It is one of the goriest things I've seen committed, I think because stylistically it works with the white room. It's pretty grisly. If you have a fear of blood, probably shouldn't be watching this one. Also, the stuff with Marky Desaad, where, you know... He is Marky Desaad, obviously. You can look him up. He's a historical figure. It's kind of weird because you have like the Gollum, you have Rosemary's Baby, and Marky Desaad, who was a real person, which is kind of insane. I mean, Dracula is based on a real person, Vlad the Impaler, but anyway, I digress. Marky Desaad, noted for all his sadomasochistic things that he used to do. He's probably the granddaddy of... uh, S&M, BDSM, all that good stuff. But the MPAA didn't like the vampire stuff because they thought it was too gruesome. And there were like weird things where like Marky Desaad would whip a woman like three or four times and the MPAA would like step in and they'd be like, you got to cut it down to two times. So it's like a lot of these scenes were really gruesome and hard to watch, especially the Marky Desaad stuff. I mean, like, look, you know that it's blood, it's fake with the vampires, but when it comes down to him torturing a bunch of the young women in this cast, it can be a hard thing to watch for some people. Not for me, because I'm a pervert, but that's fine. Fun fact, the term sadist comes from Marky Desaad. Let's talk about the reception. The film review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes reports an approval rating of 56% fresh based on 10 reviews and an average rating of 4.7. Now, there was no Rotten Tomatoes back in the 80s, so that's just kind of not. Sometimes retroactively, it's hard. This is what we talk about the legacy of a film. Once a film goes on to its lifespan, 10, 20 years, 30 years, how does it stack up? A lot of times when I review stuff, I told you most movies I review never get a 10. The only way you can get a 10 in my eyes is... What was the cultural impact of the film being discussed? Now, there's certain movies like Goodfellas. Goodfellas is a 10. But at the time of its release, I would have given it a 9. But over time, the score increases because it's been able to have a lasting effect on film in general. And Jesus Christ, everybody rips off Scorsese, so it is what it is. TV Guide gave the movie one out of five stars, stating that fans of gore will be pleased, but finding little else of worth. It did note that the cast is made up of stars from other horror movies. 
It's like, you know, it's kind of a knee-jerk thing. It's like, it's too gory. Like, you think waxwork is too gory? Look, there's some stuff that's pretty brutal, but I don't know. I think there's a lot worse out there. Just my opinion. I think a lot of times when you had these columnists or reviewers, they were not into genre movies. So a guy that I respect, one of my heroes, John Stanley from the Creature Feature Guide, had a much higher opinion of waxwork, giving a 3.5 out of 5 stars. He cited the intriguing premise as one reason for the positive reviews. Now, I think this film is great, and it is an intriguing premise. To be perfectly honest, if this film got pitched now, they would probably make it a TV show, because there's a lot to do. You could have a whole season just be about the adventures in these displays, these pocket universes. You know, like a third of the season could be spent with the vampires. And then, you know, like you have other characters and you move around. This is definitely something now, I think Waxwork, if it was pitched, it would definitely be a TV show. This film is great. You should watch it. There's no, I want to be like, oh, but this is a really good movie. You need to watch it. But here's the backdoor sneak attack. You didn't see this coming. Not even producer Pete saw this coming. Because this is a backdoor episode for Waxwork 2, Lost in Time. And there's a reason. Because this movie's even weirder. But the reason I wanted to get into it is because Waxwork 2, there is so little documentation on how this film was made. The only thing I was really able to find as far as concrete facts about this movie, on the recently released Blu-ray, there is a director's commentary with Anthony Hickox and Zach Galligan. They get into some of the production stuff, but very little. A lot of it is just kind of them palling around. So it doesn't give you a lot of insight into the second film. Now, Waxwork 2, Lost in Time, it's a... It was made in 92, so it's four years after the original film was made. I couldn't find any kind of a production budget. And it's crazy because a friend of the show, Sean King, he's on the uh, Boarding House episode. We were talking about Waxwork 2. And it's like every dime that they had to spend on the second movie, you can see it on the screen. Like it's they're just stretching I mean, they, they ran out of money. They had to shoot stuff in people's apartments. It was a disaster. The film premiered in the Philippines on March 26, 1992, and then was given a direct-to-video release in the United States on June 16, 1992. The film is a labor of love. Like, Anthony Hickox made the sequel to this film, Zach Galligan, because they love the concept of the movie. And this one is, is a bit different, obviously, because it's not actually dealing with a waxwork. The film opens with a reenactment of the final scenes of waxwork, with Mark and Sarah leaving the burning waxwork. The part of Sarah having been recast, it's no longer Deborah Foreman, it's a different actress. The disembodied zombie hand from the first film follows Sarah to her rundown apartment and kills her stepfather with a hammer, a murder for which Sarah is blamed. So it turns into kind of like a courtroom film for a few minutes. No one believes her story about the evil waxwork. In hope of gathering evidence, Mark and Sarah visit the late Sir Wilfred's home, where they find a film reel of Sir Wilfred speaking on his and Mark's grandfather's adventures and the artifacts they collected together. 
which is insane because none of this is mentioned in the first movie, but I love sequels like this that are just batshit crazy. And they're like, okay, well the first one was about a waxwork, but now we're going to get into all kinds of crazy artifacts that have magical powers and do things. And you're just like, holy shit, how did this sequel get made? But it did. A secret switch in Sir Wilfred's chessboard opens the door to a room full of objects. Mark and Sarah find a small compass-like device. They learn this device was used in history by light and dark angels to travel through other dimensions consisting of stories that have become realities. Some stories are so powerful that they become real. They are able to use this compass to travel through the worlds of Frankenstein, The Haunting, uh, which is probably my favorite sequence in the movie that has Bruce Campbell and a small cameo, very funny stuff. Uh, Dr. Jekyll, Alien, Godzilla, Jack the Ripper, Nosferatu, and Dawn of the Dead. This movie's insane. I really love, look, and, and here's the great thing. You can go on any of the streaming services now, and like you can buy Waxwork and Waxwork 2 for like five bucks, and I, I, I highly recommend you do it. The second movie is nowhere near as good the first film, but it's fucking so batshit crazy that you kind of need to see it. According to the exposition later given by Sir Wilford in the form of a raven, these worlds comprise what he calls God's video game, where God and the devil battle over the fate of the world, which each victory being reflected in the events that are occurring in our world. When Mark and Sarah appear in each reality, they take on the persona of characters in those stories, sometimes having their personalities and memories taken over by those characters until they regain their senses. This is high concept fantasy stuff. We went from kind of the horror, you know, um, homage of the first film to all this weird stuff that's going on in this second movie. Um, they plan, Mark basically tries to gather evidence of the reanimated dead to bring back to the real world as proof of Sarah's story in court. After several failed attempts and being lost in one world after another, they battle with an evil sorcerer and Mark is able to send Sarah home with an animated zombie hand as proof of her story. And what are you going to do? You're going to walk into the fucking court with, oh, you know, I didn't do it. This is fucking zombie hand. It's like Thing from, and that's what it was. It was an homage to Thing from the Adams family. I don't know if that'll work. I don't know if that'll hold up. Unable to return with her, Mark instead arranges to have another compass delivered to Sarah after her trial ends so she can rejoin him. You got all that? That's a lot. I don't even know. I can't. Look, the second movie is not as good. They tried, and I, I really like the concept. Again, Anthony Hickox, like, he came up with Waxwork 1 and 2. This guy, he's got a brilliant mind. Like, I, win, lose, or draw. Yeah, you know, maybe some people over at Marvel. You know, you're doing multiverses and stuff. This guy was doing it 30 years ago. Maybe give him a call. Maybe he's got good ideas. I still like his idea about putting Steven Seagal with those uh, aliens, uh, alien monsters on a submarine. You know what? They should probably send Steven Seagal with some alien monsters on that submarine right about now. He turned out to be a real piece of shit, huh? He's a weird dude. He's a, he's a traitor to America. And he's, you know, Steven Seagal's a weird guy because he's always... He's like, he's like, you know, he's told people he's Italian, then he's not Italian. He's told people that he's like half Native American. That's not true either. And now 
he is uh, he says that he is of Russian descent and he no longer lives in the United States and is considered an enemy of the state. Probably not allowed back here because of past tax fraud and whatnot. And that he also might be a danger to the welfare and security of the nation. Jesus Christ. For a man who fought the Jamaican posse and marked for death, we've definitely come a long way. Things are, wow, kind of went off on a tangent there, folks. So all in all, what did we learn? What's the summation of Waxwork? It's a great movie that has a lot of great ideas, and I feel that it succeeds. If I had to give Waxwork a rating out of 1 to 10, probably a 7 out of 10. It's a fun movie. It's definitely different. It's unique. When we talk about a lot of the other films that we've done this season, it's really out there. It's it's a really weird movie in contrast and has some great ideas. Does it execute all of them flawlessly? No, especially the sequel. The sequel is is bizarre. And what's even crazier is I can't find any information. Like, I don't know if everybody was like, everybody signed a gag order or they were all murdered and taken to another dimension. But even watching the Blu-ray uh, with Zach Gallagher and Anthony Hickox, I, I still like, they pal around and they have fun, but the movie's only an hour and a half and there's only so much information to gleam from them. I hope you've enjoyed this second season thus far. I've had a lot of good, good stuff, especially, you know, a variety of different movies been all over the map if not one thing 88 is like this year where creativity kind of shines whether it's the elm street movies uh whether it's beetlejuice or waxwork these films have they're they're big canvases for these artists to paint on for the actors the writer the, re- the director and it all works i, I really got to tell you if you haven't seen this movie if there's one thing you do, please go and and see it. It's a really good movie. Hey, we got t-shirts at Tee Public. Don't forget about that. Don't forget all our supporters and sponsors. They'll help you out. Go visit them. You've heard the ads. You might as well, right? You know, if I'm bringing you cool movies, I'm going to bring you cool stuff to buy, right? Because that's how we roll. Don't forget to follow me on the social medias. At Jerry Hara on Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd. I got reviews. Read the reviews. There's tons of them. I just keep, I can't stop. I can't stop. Ladies and gentlemen, friends beyond the binary, I am Jerry Hara. This has been The Offering, where we are mostly horror, always genre. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Pugh. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, 
We're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.